0: Hello friends, welcome to the 10th episode of Kitchfork. Before we begin with talking about Bjork and the album Vespertine, which by the way, on our part was excellent timing because she just announced a podcast that she's just putting up the first episodes of In A Couple Days after when we're posting this episode. But in the true spirit of some of our heroes, you know, the Shins of Montreal and just the indie scene of the 2000s, in the true spirit of that, we're selling out. So our sponsor is the audio program, Imitone. So yeah, in all seriousness, this sponsor I think is fairly relevant to our podcast and it's by a friend of mine Evan Bolster nice guy known from the game scene uh, but basically what it is is the tagline is mind to melody So you simply sing or whistle to control any music software as if you're playing the notes by hand sort of like a MIDI controller But you know, let's say you're better at singing. It's quicker for you It's easier for you than than messing with the MIDI controller or anything like that There's a lot of ways to sort of play with the the data that you get the sound that you get It's intuitive instant and expressive. I own him a and played with it, and I think it's a lot of fun and I also just think the team in general that made it are, are cool folks, so so we have an affiliate link for you. If you go to imitone.com slash Kitchfork, Imitone is spelled I-M-I-T-O-N-E, by the way. And remember, Kitchfork is spelled K-I-T-S-C-H-F-O-R-K. You can get $5 off on the standard edition of Imitone and $10 off of the studio edition I fully recommend it. Like I said, I own the program myself, and I, I want them to get some more money <laughs> so that they can keep doing what they're doing. Um, but yeah, I also have a little demo for you that they provided me with. I didn't want to embarrass myself <laughs> anymore <laughs> with my own voice, although maybe I will in the future, or maybe I'll have Max do it in the future. But in the meantime, here's a little demo for you so you have an idea what it sounds like.
1: Boop, 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 bo-
0: So yeah, go to imatone.com uh, slash kitschfork to see more. If you're interested, make some noises with your voice, make some music, you know, make some music for McDonald's or Outback Steakhouse and have some fun. So without any further ado, it's time for episode number 10 of Kitchfork.
3: Hello, and welcome to the yes. Kitchfork Podcast, an anti nostalgic look back at indie music of the aughts and the hipster culture that enabled it. I'm one of your hosts, Max Cohen. And I'm one of your other hosts and enablers, <laughs> Liz Ryerson. And today, on our 10th episode, Woo. love hitting big, whole numbers. Much like in episode five, we're talking about an album that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, Vespertine by Björk. Yeah, Björk. <laughs> well, I, c- I can tell you exactly how to pronounce her name, by
0: the way. I've said Björk a billion times, so I-, I really don't care. The thing is, she's Icelandic, and saying, saying Björk is still not exactly how you pronounce it anyway, because <laughs> sure. it's not English. So I feel like it does. But yeah, you pronounce it sort of like Björk <laughs> Is
3: is how... That's incredible (laughs) (laughs) so yeah yeah so I think we planned this back when we did little earthquakes at every five episodes we do like an album that both of us like regardless of its impact on indie culture although this happens to be a bit of both which is nice yeah I mean it came out within the timeline
0: of other albums that we've been looking at so
3: absolutely this is a 2001-er but I do know, as much as we both love uh, Bjork and this, this album, you're the bigger devotee. So what is your what was your journey with Bjork like?
0: Okay. Oh, see, I was anxious about doing this episode. Uh, you, you were actually the one who suggested it, which I mean, I was happy you suggested it. But much like with the Interpol episode for you, I... I have a I have a pretty complicated and intense relationship with her music. She's my most listened to artist on Last FM if that tells you anything. I was like incredible. A, yeah, I was like a Bjork super fan like to the degree that I was not a fan of anything else including like like Radiohead or Kate Bush who are also up there for me, but um I was obsessed with her music for like the whole most of the twenty tens but I didn't really hear her music, so Bjork was somebody who was like, if you were around in the nineties, you heard her name, or you know if you watched m t v if you looked at any sort of music magazine or whatever you heard of her, mm-hmm. yeah, but I never really like listened to her music i'm sure i heard I'm sure I heard it's oh so quiet because that was played on m t v like a lot. And I think that's one of the only things that got, like, significant airplay in the U.S. of
3: hers. It was, like, that an Army of Me, I remember getting pretty big on the radio. Yeah. Like, alt radio. And,
0: of course, every one of her videos is fucking wonderful, especially from that period. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing the homogenic album cover because it's such an iconic image Um uh, maybe appropriative but (laughs) whatever but you know I didn't really listen to a lot of female artists because I grew up in a pretty misogynistic household same deal with Tori Amos and around the same time uh, I was working I'd like moved back home after college and I was working at this cafe and one of the people who was working there was listening to Vespertine and he was like really into Bjork so I was like you know maybe maybe now's the time so I literally started listening to this album right when I moved. I moved back to, like, Oberlin where I went to school. And, like, immediately when I did that, my computer just completely crapped out. Like, so I didn't have a computer. And then I was given, like, this really, really horrible laptop that could barely run anything. And I didn't have a job or anything. I had some, like, money saved up from working at this other place but so I just sat there like during the fall of 2010 and listening to Vespertine over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again and it's like a very strange association for me because it's very intense like this album is very intense her music is very intense but um it's also like kind of associated with a very strange time in my life I was very like dissociated mm-hmm. Um, So it's kind of hard for me to revisit this album in particular. And then starting around then, you know, uh, I became like a Bjork super fan. I saw her during her biophilia tour. And I remember people were talking during the concert and I was so upset. (sighs) (sighs) um the absolute gall cuz it's like it was like $100 the ticket somebody bought the the ticket for me for that but then i also when i visited new york for the first time saw her uh in one of the like opera house shows that she did for the Cura tour and i was sobbing and, Aww. you know, uh, it was intense, but it was a great experience. The biophilia one was okay because it was in like a warehouse, the biophilia. But the volney tour was in like a, you know, big opera house in New York. So, but yeah. Uh, and then I kind of like eventually started to fall out with her music. Like, and there are reasons for that that I can talk about later. But doing this episode actually kind of got me back into her again, and it's kind of funny because uh, she literally just today of the day of recording, she announced her new album, the the title, and it's supposed to come out soon, uh, her first album in five years, which is called Fassora. So very exciting. Yeah, I'll definitely. And it's funny because uh, I started to fall out with her like towards the time of the release of her last album, so it's kind of like. But anyway,
3: uh, yeah, that's my background with
0: with Bjork and and Vespertine,
3: summarized. Yeah, I I knew you liked Bjork. I didn't realize how intense the relationship was. Oh, very intense. Yeah. (laughs) So so here we are, you know. I'm glad we finally have a a Liz-centric counterpart to the Interpol episode. Although I don't hate Bjork. Um, Well, I don't hate Interpol. (laughs) I just don't love them either.
0: Right, I'm sure there's some group, there's some artists that I like who you're like feel about the same as I feel about Interpol. For so,
3: I'm sure we'll find it at some point. But I love Bjork, and, and the reason I thought of, one of the reasons I thought of Vespertine around or around the time we were thinking about Tori Amos is because Bjork is another artist I got into because of my sisters. Mm, that makes perfect sense, and that like my oldest sister had a copy of Debut in her CD wallet, of course. And I just have this. Early formative memory of like being left in her car with the car on because it's it was Texas and you have to do that or else I would die. Mm -hmm. Um, and just digging through her CD wall and finding like the CD art of debut, which is like intriguing in a way that a lot of the other CD art wasn't. I mean, it's just black with a stylized Bjork on it, but still, um, it was enough to get me to put it in. And that was like my like formative experience with Bjork. That's when I was like, or that's when I started to really like glom onto that sound. Yeah, I mean, Debut is, for all intents and purposes, a house record, but it, it's also has a lot of the the hallmarks of, like, Bjork's sonic obsessions in it that get explored later on. Yeah, absolutely. And shortly thereafter, or when I started finally, like, buying my own CDs of, like, 13 or 14, I was like, okay, finally time to really get into Bjork because I can do it on my own terms uh, and not just listen to whatever my sisters have. And Vespertine was just the album that was out at the time. You know, it was the album that you could find on in, in Best Buy, you know, which I think was the closest CD store to my, my hometown. And that was a huge obsession all through high school. It became like sort of the soundtrack for the beginning and the ending of my first two romantic relationships. Wow, that's <laughs> intense. It was it was
0: really intense. I mean, we'll be saying that a lot with anything to do with Bjork though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing absolutely.
3: about her that is not intense. No, everything is a thousand percent. And so, like, even as I started like digging into the album's pride, like the post and homogenic, and you know, kept up with her career afterwards, Vespertine's always kind of held this spot as like feeling like my album. But uh, but yeah, it's like um like as a result, revisiting it. For this was weird, like really emotional in the way that the art that's close to you when you're young and like vulnerable and angsty holds a place that the art you're into as an adult quite doesn't quite. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like I've been away from this album that long. You know, on my other podcast, we did a Bjork episode, so I'd listen to all the albums then. But I don't know. I, there's something about reexamining and like really diving into this album in particular that just made for a very cathartic week and a half or so, how, however long it's been that we've been researching this. Yeah, about that long. It's a really special album. You know, it doesn't really sound like any of her other work. I mean, not that Bjork albums usually sound similar, but it, it specifically feels quiet. Yeah, it's her, as she describes, her introvert album. Right. It evokes like kind of a mood and an aesthetic that feels really special and unique to it.
0: Yeah, I uh, I guess before we get into talking about the background of this album, do you want to read a little bit of the Pitchfork review, which is so underwhelming? Actually, like, so I, I should say that this album is incredibly well regarded. Some people, it's become a consensus opinion to say it's her best album. I
3: don't necessarily consider it her best album, although it's certainly one of her best for me. It's it's definitely my favorite. I mean, I think there are arguments to be made about like homogenic or Volnukura or I mean, I think there's a lot of great albums. is my favorite. Medulla's really good. I think Medulla's maybe definitely the most underrated. <laughs> but
0: uh, regardless, Pitchfork thought it was being cool by going against consensus opinion because this, this album was, of course, very well received. But Pitchfork gave it a 7.2. And when they did their whole rescored thing, everyone's like, why the hell didn't you rescore Vespertine? Even Anthony Fantano is making videos about how this album's a perfect 10, you know. So, make of that what you will. But they ended up putting it on like one of their like best albums of the two thousands list. So it's not like they completely ignored it. But still, like it's
3: kind of baffling. In the same time, uh, yeah, no, I'm happy to read from it. We're going to be reading from two reviews today. This is this is another classic pitchfork and Chris Gow dunk fest.
0: Yeah, I might save the Chris Gow thing in for a few minutes. But Chris Gow
3: has to be saved for later because. But I want you to anticipate it's worse than anything you've ever read. I can tell you this now. Absolutely. (laughs) Whatever you're expecting, it's worse than that. To the point where by comparison, the Pitchfork review doesn't even feel that bad because it's underwhelmed and it's kind of like over it and pretentious, but it's not creepy. Um, But it starts like this, which is a very like, oh, shrug. This is by Ryan Schreiber, by the way, Um, one of the- Of course. Early tent poles of pitchfork writing, and um, and the founder of the website, and the founder of the website, I guess, if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's it's a very like cast off hipster shrug way to start. So this is it, the great follow up to Homogenic, we've anticipated since that overcast late September afternoon in 1997 when we first sat listening to the album for the first time, wondering what she might do next somehow it doesn't seem worth the wait homogenic still the most innovative and substantial release of Bjork's solo career spilled over with rich melody and sybaritic imagery you know i have to say i don't love homogenic the way a lot of people do and so i always get a little confused by this kind of stuff i think it's her her, like first foray into
0: like that kind of album yeah I think maybe also the the music press in 1997 was like the music industry in 1997 was in a crazy like manic period I mean it came out around the same time as OK computer and I like very (laughs) much associate those two albums so I think like with each other so I think that might be
3: part of it yeah maybe it's just you had to be there its dense programmed percussion reflected idm's infancy the richard d james album being a frequent point of comparison yet submerged it in brooding russian strings buoyed by thumping bass hits and bjork's urgent frustrations russian strings what like it was recorded in spain oh yeah no they have no idea what they're talking about okay sorry continue and also, let me let me just say This entire, like, first couple of paragraphs Is not about Vespertine It's all about Homogenic The album's cavernous echoes And masterful arrangements Sprang to larger-than-life proportions Like the American musical Selma Fantasized about and Dancer in the Dark Which is another
0: Yeah, we can talk about Dancer in the Dark in a second
3: Speaking of terrible people I hate Lars von Trier and all of his art Oh yeah, we're, we're, we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this is a weird love and hate fest. Both cohesive and inconceivably modern, homogenic sounded like the future music of childhood dreams. That's a that's a classic pitchforkism right there. Yeah, the future music of childhood dreams. Um, while undeniably beautiful, Vespertine fails to give electronic music the forward push it received on Bjork's preceding albums. Rather than designing sounds never before imagined, the album merely sounds current, relying on the technology of standard studio software and the explorations of the PowerBook elite. I wonder how he thinks the other albums were made. <laughs> <laughs> like, were they forged in the, the, the dark volcanoes of Iceland? Like, this is, that's how you make an electronic album. Yeah, that's obviously how you do it. <laughs> there are a few surprises here for the Bjork fan and fewer for the electro aficionado. Sure, it's nice to listen to, but it rarely challenges like posts and joy and headphones or like homogenics Pluto. And (laughs) did you see that tweet about Pluto?
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, somebody, I I swear that tweet was designed. Somebody made a tweet that was basically like, why did any critic like this? And they clipped like the most, you know, abrasive part of Pluto. Right. Uh,
3: Which is a sick part. And I love that song.
0: Which is awesome. I mean, that's a great (laughs) song. But yeah, I, I feel like that was almost designed for, it's another in that sort of trend of like, I don't know if this is an actual thing or if it's fucking AstroTurf, the whole Gen Z Puritan thing. You,
3: you know what I mean. I think it's a little... I think it's one of those things where the most embarrassing examples are the ones that are that float to the top. Yeah, also, I wasn't on
0: social media, like Twitter, when I was fucking, you know, 18, 19, 20 years
3: old, so... Exactly. I was on Facebook, and I see some of those posts sometimes and just want to cringe out of my skin. Yeah. But... Um, and what yeah so so it's nice to listen to but it's not like these other songs and what's a Bjork album without The Ambush I feel like we can kind of st- well okay yeah no yeah the one yeah, the he's... one thing I want to bring up is later when they say like there's a whole paragraph devoted to this tearing down hipster shit Glitch wither- Wizards Matt Most were called in during the Vespertine sessions to co-produce many of the album's tracks I wonder where they are
0: Well, that's because they are barely on most
3: of the tracks. (laughs) Uh, Their contributions were very overstated. Nowhere is their signature signature sound even remotely traceable. A theory. Starstruck by Bjork's iconic visage, they lent what they felt she would want and left the experimenting to their own releases. Wow, wild speculation (laughs) there. It's amazing. Clearly Bjork realized that this duo was capable of inventing sounds beyond her wildest dreams, but the end result is typical. Not exactly a rehash, but nevertheless predictable. Um, Yeah, he also says uh, Vespertine is riddled with
0: sameness and the unshakable feeling that you've heard these songs before.
3: Which, again, like, I don't don't hear it. (laughs) I mean, especially compared to like debut, which is fairly samey and is of the time. Yeah, debut is very
0: of its time. I think it's just that Vespertine is less electronic than her previous albums. Like the the strings and the harp like that
3: plays such a bigger part of the music. I also love that like he keeps calling attention to she didn't make any, you know, new sounds here when she literally commissioned a music box in a plexiglass yeah. to get a specific sound. Yep. It just feels so entitled. <laughs> Yeah. I mean,
0: like to be honest, there is something about Bjork that just evokes this response from people, almost more than any other artist I can. The only artist that I can compare that like evoked these bizarre and fevered and entitled responses from people was like MIA maybe. Oh yeah.
3: Yeah. Or, I mean, Liz Fair is kind of an example for that self-titled...
0: Yeah, but Liz Fair at least makes mu- a kind of music that was, like, somewhat familiar, you know, to a lot of people writing about it mm-hmm. versus, you know, Bjork or M.I.A. But, and I, I think this is true throughout her career, but, I, I mean, it's the, she's had so many... Di- there's been so many different things that have sort of embodied that. I mean, so just to describe her background a little bit, I assume most people listening know who she is, but... Like, many different places I've lived, I've mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I like Bjork. And they've been like, I don't know who that is. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) That's
3: extremely weird.
0: So I don't think that she's, like, unless you followed music in the 90s, I guess, or, like... I think it's
3: one of those early examples of things that are ubiquitous in one generation starting to leave the cultural consciousness. Yeah. But it, it does feel weird because... Bjork was they were making fun of her on Saturday Night Live like she was that kind of big yeah it's true but yeah so she was
0: born in Iceland and her mom apparently like divorced her dad when she was young and apparently like lived in hippie commune for like years and I I think that kind of explains a lot about Bjork I mean the the kind of two sides of her is and, and and by the way I'm not looking up any of this information I just know it because
3: I know so- <laughs> this is this is from the dome yeah
0: but um like Tori Amos like when she was very young in Iceland she went to the conservatory uh but like Tori Amos she kind of had you know clashed with the more conservative kind of approach to music um and like Tori Amos though her experience at the conservatory and like with classical music is pretty Foundational to like the music that she makes, mm-hmm. especially like, you know, as her career goes on. Well, and like, I mean, you're a super fan. You've heard that first Bjork album, right? Uh, I've, I've only heard a little bit of it, but yes, there was a, in the late 70s, I think. Uh, she was born in the mid 60s, but in the late 70s when she was 12, there is an eponymous, uh, <laughs> technically her first debut, just named Bjork it's like very cheesy and of its
3: time and I think she's it's extremely like 70s almost like 70s soft rock
0: kind of thing yeah and I think she's kind of disowned that album because she was 12 years old you know but so it was kind of like a novelty thing <laughs> But after that, she ended up in a bunch of different like post-punk sort of groups. Yeah. Uh, I want to go through the names of some of these because they have wonderful names. She was in a group called, I, I can't pronounce in Icelandic, but it stands for Cork the Bitch's Ass. <laughs>
3: uh, I haven't heard of that one. That's great. She was in an
0: all-girl punk band named Spit and Snot. Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- she was in a jazz fusion band named Exodus. But her first like really notable band was named Kukul. Yes. Which is like, I don't know how you describe it. Kukul is kind of like, I, I sort of thought of like the Killing Joke or something like that. Yeah, they, they're they sort of like the Killing Joke or, or like the Bush Tetras a little bit. It is a more kind of like, almost like no wavy. Yeah. Post-punk
3: sound. A little Kleenex. Um, it definitely comes from like the no New York era of post-punk rather than like the British post-punk
0: yeah and this was when she was uh either just a teen or still or like a you know about 20 or so
3: they're they're good i like kukul a lot yeah
0: uh you can find they have a couple of releases You know, the
3: Sugar Cubes, Einar is also a uh, part of Kukul, so <laughs> for better or for worse. The plague upon music that is Einar Orn, I can't pronounce Icelandic very well, which, which brings us to the Sugar Cubes, a band I love Yeah, a lot. Like they're um, almost, they sound a lot like late era Cocteau twins. Yeah, the Sugar Cubes is kind of continuing
0: on in the direction of Kukul, but much more pop. But there is kind of like a, I guess the the environment in Iceland in these groups, it's like a pretty small country, obviously.
3: But it, it seems like a small scene. Like a lot of these bands share the same members. Yes, share the same members. A lot of these people know each other. A lot of them are like- A lot of them date. A lot, yeah. A, a lot, lot of, of them date, date each
0: other. <laughs> yeah. Her first husband was the guitarist for Sugar Cubes. She also met, or Sean, Sean, that's how you pronounce it. Uh, the Icelandic poet who comes up throughout her career, including recently, because he wrote the movie that she just appeared in this year uh, as uh, what is the name of that
3: fucking movie? This is the first I've heard of that. I've been so out of touch with culture.
0: The Northman, the Robert Eggers movie, was co-written by her longtime friends Sean, Sh- and she is like has a guest role in it, which I I didn't even know about this until looking this up. So that's pretty cool. Anyway. Um, Yeah, the sugar cubes. I think birthday is the first song that they that they
3: wrote or recorded. So here's my theory. So birthday is the first single off their first album. Is often the only sugar cube song anybody knows, and I think it's because it's one of the maybe the only one that Einar isn't on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are a few others. I don't know. Like I can't think. I I guess he is on cold sweat. He's on cold. He's on all of them a little bit. Yeah. Even the ones you don't think he's on, he's on there a little bit. And some of them much more.
0: Well, he's playing like a weird ass trumpet in in
3: Birthday. That's true. Which is what. So I often say that the Sugar Cubes are like the post punk version of Aqua.
0: Yeah. They're extremely like weirdly like bohemian. A lot of them, several of the members were not actually really musicians. They were like actually poets and stuff. Right. Yeah. Wasn't their synth player like a poet? Possibly, like mul- multiple members, <laughs> I think, of the band were writers
3: and poets. Um, but they're, they're like Aqua in that all of their songs, or most of them are Bjork singing this beautiful hook, and then this insane man shouting the dumbest shit you've ever heard. <laughs> it's not that generally Sugarcube's lyrics are like brilliant, but like, they're not horrible the way everything Einar yells is. <laughs> I think of, yeah, he's like,
0: I saw God once. He had a little beard or whatever the fuck he said.
3: He says. said hi. <laughs> I said hi. No, my favorite is the one when it's something like, I said, ouch, that really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> about like running into a wall or some fucking thing. He's just an idiot. I mean, he's not. like he, They're he... like weirdly
0: twee lyrics, but he's someone who like, it's part of Bjork's whole long thing about having like a weird thing for men who like take themselves way too fucking seriously, but also have this like weirdly infantilized side to them. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's
3: the perfect way to describe Einar and Matthew Barney Um, (laughs) although I mean Einar eventually left music as a brand for office in Iceland and I hear his politics are pretty good Yeah, I'm glad he found something that worked for him Um, but he is the worst part of any song he's in
0: yeah she wasn't with Einar she was with the guitarist from the group uh, I should clarify but you know oh you're right because Einar's gay but she musically (laughs) collaborated with him you know a lot so obviously vibe with him in some way but I should say birthday was a big hit not necessarily in the way that you would like you know it's not in the way that like a a mainstream pop artist they were like
3: 120 minutes yeah
0: they were sort of at the level of like an REM at the time where it's like they're kind of big for being like an indie band right. but they're not you know like a mainstream so they became very popular on college radio and if you heard birthday for the first time i can imagine
3: like you heard Bjork's voice for the first time there's nothing like it it's amazing like yeah she really belts on a lot of those songs like especially on life is beautiful like some of the some of the stuff she hits in like dais like at the end of dais is like insane i love it
0: yeah, and it, I mean, the whole band has, like, a very bohemian sort of vibe to it, which I think is, like, why people would like an artist like the Pixies, except, you know, that image is much more constructed in that example. But, like, mm-hmm. there's this kind of, like, loose, like, we're hanging out, we're being obnoxious yeah. and loud. It's and-
3: closer to something like, I don't know, like, Hoy Dog Pondering or, like, The Violent Femmes or, you know, this, like, very irreverent take on Alternative. Yeah. And it it worked. I mean, again, I love the sugar cubes, even like I just have to ignore Einar, but like it's really good pop music and Bjork's voice is just stunning. Yeah, so uh, the Sugar Cubes were
0: internationally successful. They started to tour. I think they toured North America in, the, in 88. Uh-huh. And they appeared on Saturday Night Live, which is like you can find the performance. I was like blown away. But imagine seeing that for the first time. I don't know. I can't. You can really get the vibe of what the Sugar Cubes is by like watching their performance of birthday on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. All the way from Iceland, our NATO ally, ladies
2: and gentlemen, the Sugar Cubes.
0: So they went on for several years, but it was kind of diminishing returns.
3: I think their last album is good. Okay, I haven't heard "Stick Around for Joy" at all. "Stick Around for Joy," like especially the big singles like "Hit" and "Walkabout." Okay, I've heard "Hit" before, but I think are fucking really good songs. And like John McGeech is on it from "Susie and the Banshees," like so it it holds a place in my heart for that. But the the, their second album's not very good, and I think you know Einar just appears more and more. Ugh. but yeah anyway so the band broke up and she ended up pursuing
0: career as a solo artist she moved to the UK and 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 this is like almost like an intentional political decision for her if you've seen like interviews she kind of disavowed guitar music and has not done it since because she grew up with it like it was you know all the bands and stuff that she was in it was all guitar music she
3: did that one remix of Army of Me with Skunk Anansi okay Which is, I think, is the sticks out to me because that's the only thing I can think of that has guitar on it that she's ever done. She's
0: called it like a symbol of Western imperialism or something like that.
3: Yeah. Oh, never change Bjork. Yeah, because guitars, guitars were invented in the West,
0: Uh, and of course, you know, Iceland was a place that was uh, colonized by the Danish. But anyway, so you know, so she ended up working with a bunch of very trendy artists in the UK and became a big pop star, especially mm-hmm. in the UK. And then various things happened that we won't go into. Yeah, like she had debut and then post and then homogenic, which was kind of her big like debut and post are a little more trendy, like of the moment. Yeah. Although post is still really great. I, I I mean, I
3: debut has great songs on it too, but post is. I've always said it's like the most second album because it's so all over the place. Like, it's just trying all the new things you can try. Yeah, and it is one of my favorite Bjork albums. Yeah, it's, it's really cool that way. But, like, Homogenic is the first one that feels like, like a cohesive artist statement. Yeah, and Homogenic
0: was huge, especially, you know, it's uh, at the level of, like, an OK computer or something like
3: that. Yeah, it's also where, like, I guess there are some really good music videos for posts, too. But it's, like, it's where a lot of her iconic music videos come from. The Bachelorette video is my
0: absolute favorite. Yeah,
3: the Bachelorette video, the All's Full of Love video from Chris Cunningham. The um, God, she has so many good videos. Yeah. Even though it's like it's barely anything. I love the Hyper Ballad video. That's not homogenic. I'm just talking about videos I like now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But the thing with Bjork is, you know, she comes from Iceland. Iceland is a fairly like socialist leaning country. Uh Uh-huh and it's also not women and men have kind of an equal role much more in Icelandic society than in other places Uh I couldn't explain to you exactly why that is but that's always that's been true for a long time and I think that kind of explains kind of the boldness in which Bjork works with so many different people and kind of brings in so many different elements that's her whole thing is like you know like as much as she's a solo artist she like consistently brings in collaborators over and over and over again
3: oh yeah to the point where you can like almost carve up eras by like what producers she's been collaborating with yeah i've met people who've worked for bjork um yeah you were telling me about this what does that what does that mean like personal assistance or like in the studio <laughs> uh well i'll explain i'll explain it later but um okay <laughs>
0: But after homogenic, she kind of, you know, became a little more reclusive. She ended up working on the Lars von Trier movie, Dancer in the Dark.
3: Which is just torture porn.
0: Yeah, which is torture porn. And uh, then at the same time that she was working on the soundtrack for Dancer in the Dark, which is called Selma Songs, which is pretty good. Which is pretty good, yeah. Uh, she was working on vespertine as kind of a side project so you know there was a four-year gap in between the album some songs came out in 2000 as did dancer in the dark and uh in early 2001 uh, she made her famous appearance at the oscars
3: i it still feels weird to me that that was as much of a thing as it was
0: Yeah, I I also want to talk about that in a second, but
3: towards the end of 2001, she released
0: Vespertine, the album that we're talking about, and it was something that she kind of mostly worked on at home. She was living in New York at the time. Newly married. Newly married to Matthew Barney, uh, a guy she would later extremely messily
3: divorce. Who makes maybe the worst art I've ever seen. I don't know if you've ever seen the the Cree Master saga. I haven't willingly engaged with a lot of his work. It's just awful. It's like the worst excesses of film school art film mixed with the worst excesses of like edgelord comedy.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I wanna read with the spirit of the worst in our in our blood. Yeah, oh god. Now I want to read the Robert Christgau review, which by the way, he gave this album an A minus. So it's uh, he didn't give it a bad score, but it's the actual rev- content of the review which I think this is the worst thing that I have ever yeah. read as a
3: content warning for horny old men.
0: <laughs> yes, okay. So imagine this being printed in like a major or, you know, put online in a major publication by a major music writer now. Like just imagine this. Okay. Here it is. I liked this a lot better once I heard it was entirely about sex, which since it often buries its pulse, took a while. Sex not fucking. I'm nervous so you better pet me a while, sex. Lick the back of my knees, sex. Okay, where my butt cheeks join my thighs, sex. I'm still a little jumpy so you better pet me some more, sex. How many different ways can we open our mouths together, sex. We came 20 minutes ago and have Sunday morning ahead of us, sex. Or, if fucking, Tantric, the one where you don't move and let vaginal peri- peristallis- peristalsis. peristalsis do the work. Yeah, sure, in parentheses. I guess this is the era of Sting. <laughs> the atmospherics glitch techno, harps, glockenspiels, and shades of Hilmar on Hilmarsen, or Hilmar Hilmarsson float free sometimes. And when she gets all soprano on your ass, you could accuse her of spirituality. But with somebody this freaky, you could get used to that. English lyrics provided, most of them dirty, if you want. It's.
3: uh, it's, This is a good Chris Gow to follow the Liz Fair Chris Gow, where literally, and the Tori Amos Chris Gow, for that matter, where literally the only thing this guy cares about is fucking ed sex that's the only thing that makes that is interesting in music to this man how is this um, motherfucker any better than fucking chuck klosterman like honestly he's worse than chuck klosterman if you ask me like klosterman is obnoxious but this is like and i'm not prude right mm-hmm. like i am fine with acknowledging and talking about the sex on this album like it is a fairly like intimate and dirty album but this means of talking about the like this is how you would talk about a Pulper a bloodhound gang album not bjork one and two what are you trying to say here
0: i don't know but keep this in your mind keep that imagery in your mind while i read this Uh, So this is from an article from 2017. It says, Over the weekend, Bjork opened up about her experiences with sexual harassment in the film industry. And it was a thinly veiled story about a Danish director who, although she didn't name him directly, it is undoubtedly Lars von Trier, who Bjork worked with on 2000's Dancer in the Dark. Okay, here's, I'm going to read some of this. This is what from Bjork in the spirit of me too i would like to lend women around the world a hand with a more detailed description of my experience with a danish director it feels extremely difficult to come out with something of this nature to the public especially when immediately ridiculed by offenders i fully sympathize with everyone who hesitates even for years but i feel it is the right time now uh when it could make a change here are a list of encounters that i think count as sexual harassment one, after each take, the director, Lars von Trier, ran up to me, uh, allegedly, Lars von will say allegedly, I don't know. The director ran up to me and wrapped his arms around me for a long time uh, in front of all crew or alone and stroked me sometimes for minutes against my wishes. <sighs> Two, when after two months of this, I said he had to stop the touching, he exploded and broke a chair in front of everyone on set, like someone who has always been allowed to fondle his actresses. Then we all got sent home. Three, during the whole filming process, there were constant, awkward, paralyzing, unwanted, whispered sexual offers from him with graphic descriptions, sometimes with his wife standing right next to us. Four, while filming in Sweden, he threatened to climb from his roof's balcony over to mine in the middle of the night with a clear sexual intention, while his wife was in the room next door. I escaped to my friend's room. This was what finally woke me up to the severity of all of this and made me stand my ground. Five fabricated stories in the press about me being difficult by his producer. So this was, if you were around at the time, you would see stories about her eating her shirt in protest, of right but yeah she says this matches beautifully the Weinstein uh, Weinstein methods and bullying I have never eaten a shirt not sure that is even possible it doesn't seem possible no Uh, well I guess Werner Herzog ate his shoe so well (laughs) there's a level of dedication to Werner Herzog that none of us can can match Uh, six I didn't comply or agree with being sexually harassed that was then portrayed as me being difficult if being difficult
3: is standing up to being treated like that I'll own it there you go. Warmth Bjork. If if you've ever seen a Lars von Trier movie, it shouldn't surprise you that he is a skeezy misogynist. But yeah, like uh, think about that Chris Gow review up against
0: what she just said. And like it just tells you like what the norms were for like female artists in general and the fact that yeah. Bjork was so like this strong very intense artist she attracted it even more i mean there's a famous example of her attracting that yeah which we don't need to get into but you can easily find if you want to g- google it although i wouldn't recommend it but also around the same time she was nominated and i did she win the oscar for um for selma songs for i've seen I it think all so. okay She did perform I've Seen It All at the 2001 Oscars, where she wore the famous swan dress by Marjan Pajowski, who's like Polish. Mm -hmm. And apparently the world collectively lost its shit about this swan dress. I really don't know why, but I want to bring in the words of Chris Fleming here. You know Chris Fleming, right? The comedian. Yes, I do like once again saying exactly what I'm thinking with his like previous bit about St. Vincent and now this one, so I'll just play the audio.
2: There's two things baby boomers just cannot handle and that's one pit bulls, they they think pit bulls are like genetically modified killers, (laughs) just they can't. And the other thing they can't handle is when uh, Bjork wore the swan suit to the Oscars, that's the other thing. (laughs) Uh, my dad was in bed for two weeks after uh, wow. Chris, I don't know why she did that. It's just weird. Like um, it, it shattered America when Bjork wore the swan suit to the Oscars. We still haven't let go of it. America is such a boring place. And and, and, and had, like we're taught when we're young, like in fourth grade, I remember all these posters that are like be original, be yourself, be authentic. And then like she does something, it's like no no it's like be original but run it by us first. <laughs> that's that's the American tenet right there. Like you you might embarrass yourself. But what we need in America you got to vet everything by vet an idea by like many other nations and then bring it to us. And then also don't just do like the most interesting authentic people I've ever met they're not pleasing to be around. Like you don't, we, we can't handle what we want to take those original ideas and then just give it to the hottest person. That's, that's, how, we, that, that's how we can consume.
0: Anyway, there you go.
3: Oh God,
2: yeah, that's bleak. It's so
3: true though. Um, and true, it, it's very true. And it's, you know, I guess it happened again right with Gaga and the meat dress. It's so quaint to think about now. I guess this was the point where we still had a monoculture Yes, that's that's
0: fair, and this is when they started making fun of her on SNL or, or around this period. You know, yes, she's always in like, the
3: swan dress. Always. My baby. name
1: is Birkenbaum.
3: You know, they talk like that. Yeah.
1: Everything is music. When I go home, I throw nickels into the oven, and it's music: crash, boom, bang,
0: But I recall a thing that uh Alan Partridge. What is that guy's name? who is alan partridge what steve coogan oh (laughs) british comedian steve coogan i recall something that uh, steve coogan said about kate bush which is of course she's a gift
2: for satirists of course it's easy because dull artists especially in pop music are very difficult to satirize it was all there on a plate really wasn't it it's about misinterpreting what she meant
1: you know
0: I mean, Kate Bush was made fun of in a similar way early in her career. So so if there's an original female artist who's like hyper visible, you can guarantee that she'll be mercilessly mocked. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I I think this was kind of her last time in the spotlight, actually. Like Vespertine kind of symbolizes her, you know, retreating uh, and becoming more of what she became afterwards, which is like this kind of art pop the almost like figure of the art world it's funny because it's
3: not like i don't know if i would say she got more or less experimental it's it's almost just like people stopped following her like especially like once medulla hit i, I think a lot of people dropped off yeah and i think that was already kind of starting to happen with
0: vespertine apparently it sold less than you know her previous albums did but, but yeah so ever since then she's kind of been in that realm and yeah, uh, Vespertine is also when she started touring more, not in like concert venues, but in like opera houses and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's actually a document. So the thing with Bjork is like, there's like almost a documentary about every single one of her albums. Like there's so much, so much in interviews and like, you know, documentary stuff that she did. I presume part of it was to as like a controlled PR move, to like you know so she can control the sort of narrative uh, a little bit more Mm -hmm. but yeah this is an album and I I feel like we haven't even talked about it very much but this is an album that's strange and difficult for me because it's often described, including by Chris Gow, including by this Vespertine Turns 20 article by the same guy that I mentioned before, Tom Bryhand, which I'm convinced that Stereogum only exists to write fucking Turns 20 articles at this point. It's
3: definitely hit that point, yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, he also echoes this, oh, it's about sex, and it's like,
3: uh... So lyrically, I get it. I had to be told that, though, because I don't, as this podcast has asserted it again and again, I'm not a lyrics person, and the album mm-hmm. is so cold and sad. <laughs> well, this
0: is this is why I mentioned all the Dancer in the Dark stuff yeah. and the Swan suit and all that stuff, because if you imagine that being sort of a collective force just, like, bearing down on her as a person this album makes a lot more sense versus if you think about it as like a sex or new relationship album, because it is her darkest
3: album, I think. Yeah, I, I'd go with you. I mean, Volna is pretty, pretty dark, but yeah, I, I would go with you there. Musically, I think it's her darkest album. Yeah, it's really, it's so cold. It's like, on purpose, it has a very like, kind of glassy, icy, thin sound, which which I've heard is like, her reacting to the sound of music compression at the time to try and make stuff that sounds good in mp3 yeah
0: so it's just, supposedly she said that yeah to try to make it sound good downloaded or whatever and this was like the period of albums leaking on file sharing before they came out i'm pretty sure vespertine was you know one of them certainly in the same way that like kid a was sure, but
3: aesthetically like it's a very whole and consistent album that feels extremely lonely <laughs> I describe this album as almost like Disney horror. Yeah,
0: I could see that, especially yeah when the strings come in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some pretty scary (laughs) parts. I don't know it's not scary in like a jump scare sense but just in terms of a like like nightmare vibes or whatever i think bjork is beyond vibes i don't (laughs) think vibes are a a sufficient way to describe any of her music but you know what i mean which we can trust from the the
3: vibe free lifestyle purveyor Mm -hmm. yeah but that's why i love it like i think it's why at the time i liked it more than any of the other bjork albums is because it felt so different and like Dark and weird and angsty in a way that like as a teen is very appealing.
0: I just don't know what to make of the sex songs because like for one, you know, she would end up having a messy divorce with this guy who she's talking about mm-hmm. as being so wonderful in, so- in a few of the songs. And then another is just the general mood of the album. like there are a few more uplifting songs, mostly towards the end. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard for me to be like, oh, this is such a
3: sexy album. It's like, no, no. I don't get that sensation at all. I don't get it at all. And, it, and you know, it's telling right in the Chris Gow review that he's like, once I heard it was about sex, I liked it a lot more. Because if you're just listening to it. Because then I can acceptably be horny for this fucking artist and my review. But also, like, if you're just listening to it and not listening to the lyrics, it doesn't sound horny. It doesn't really sound intimate. Well, it doesn't sound. It sounds intimate, I would say. It's intimate. But it's like not like two people being intimate with each other. It's intimate in a very lonely way.
0: Yeah. So before we start, we're about to start talking about the individual songs, but I just want to say this quote from this document the same upload that I've watched since like 2011 is up on YouTube of the minuscule documentary for vespertine and it has interviews with her and matt Moss and uh, some of the singers cena parkins as well the um the harpist mm-hmm. who was a teacher I, I don't know maybe she still is at mills college where my friend uh, tammy went to school so i met her briefly but anyway that's one of many people that i've met briefly who've worked with Bjork. uh anyway okay she describes it as I think I was aiming for how you can express yourself when you've exploded 5,000 times and there's nothing left and you're just lying there like the ruins of you, but you still want to make something, but you have, and this is this is very Bjork phrase, uh, but you have no muscle and no blood And you still want to create beauty. So she's saying that's a lot of the instruments and stuff that she picked. The harps, the celestias, you know, the choir. Music boxes. Music box, yeah. She describes it as music with no physicalness, no body. It's supposed to kind of calm you and soothe you like hibernation to help you wait until you become strong again. So yeah, she does not mention sex really at all in the in the interviews talking about
3: the album. I think the other thing that's weird to me about it is it's not like this is the first time Bjork has sung about sex. Bjork has always been fairly horny. Uh, like most of the Sugar Cube songs were horny. Yeah, fucking in pain and sorrow. Yeah. Or like in like hetero scum or, or you know, Walkabout has the line, there's a hole and there's a stick. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she's not subtle and it's not new. It, it just seems weird to focus in on it here.
0: Yeah, so... The sound of the album also partially came from, and I—it's so funny because, like, when I was reading the Boards of Canada interviews, they were talking about how much they hated the "quote unquote" laptop sound, mm-hmm. which is impossible to Google now, by the oh, way. Yes, <laughs> don't, don't try to Google that. But I think what they mean is like uh, very, very highly digital, you know, highly processed kind of music that was often made on laptops at the time because. Laptops were more of like a you know, e- the laptops existed in the in the nineties. Yeah. And the early two thousands, but they were more of like a luxury item. Right.
3: It's also worth saying that like especially in the IDM scene, people love their analog sense, you know, since that work with like circuits and transistors rather than with like digital sound, which is where another place where like a lot of that yeah almost gatekeepy thing is coming from.
0: Yeah, well, and some of the, you know, some of that music became very cliche by a certain point, but Bjork is somebody who manages to subsume elements that are trendy, but not necessarily make them sound trendy at all. Like, you know, with host and or with working with Arca or you know etc but and I think it's similar like some of it at least was made on a laptop I know she used Sibelius I'm guessing like Logic Pro was in use by that point Mm -hmm. uh a a software so at the very least Pro
3: Tools was was around
0: (laughs) yeah it's one of those things where you know we talk about how music software and just access to sounds got so much better in the late 90s and a lot of sort of kind of music came as a result of that. And this is another example. So she composed a lot of it herself, but she also worked with a bunch of different producers, as she always does. Um, Thomas Knack mm-hmm. is one of them. Um, and Marius DeVries, De a-, a bunch of different people. There, I mean, if you have, I actually own the CD here. Oh. <laughs> which the artwork is great for this. Uh, like even better, like... So the album cover has her in the swan dress and there's like a swan drawing on top of it. But inside there are these drawings that kind of capture the album. They're very organic, Mm -hmm. but also in like kind of whimsical, but also kind of terrifying. They make me think of like the painter, like uh, Juan Miro Mm -hmm. a little bit. They're like these kind of shapes, like I said, that are slightly terrifying, but also very organic. Um... But yeah, they're by, um, what's the name of the design firm? Uh, it's called M M/M slash M Paris, who she's worked with a bunch, uh, including like on the design of the biophilia cover and a bunch of other things. So mm-hmm. her whole thing is like working with a big gazillion different people. I mean, she spends, <laughs> <laughs> like every album that she, she does, it sounds like she spent you know, serious money and resources making it happen. So Yeah,
3: there's there's always, like... Um, you can definitely hear the work, you know, especially in, like, things that are filled with a lot of stitched-together, like, samples and small sounds like this or medulla. It feels so intricate. And so, like, her songwriting style is weirdly amorphous. Like, the the chords kind of just travel into each other rather than repeating in normal ways. I mean, sometimes they do, but, like, mm-hmm. often... A song like I think especially when we get there, like stuff like Cocoon feels like more of a textural experience almost. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: the one other thing I should say is for the tour for this album. So she brought in Matmos sort of at the end to, you know, add some extra beats she describes. I think it's similar to what Arca kind of contributed to um,
4: mm-hmm.
0: Volnacura. It's like not like a full collaboration, but... They contributed sort of bits that made it seem a little bit more virtuosic because it was kind of her first time doing these sorts of beats. And uh, she ended up bringing them on to like tour throughout the whole tour. So that during the tour, it was more of like a Bjork-Matmos collaboration, which is probably where some of the, You know responses from people that like you know matt most produced this album and all that came from because she later you know said something about this in the 2010s about how everyone thinks that matt most produced this album but it was
3: a thing with a lot of bjork albums where like she didn't get a lot of credit for the production (laughs) yeah and and she's more heavily involved
0: uh she describes it as like getting into things that would sound good on the laptop that she was using like micro beats like this kind of like tapestry of different very small beats that are kind of layered together. So that's kind of part of the sound. But also uh Zena Perkins who plays harp on the album, she also got to tour. She's a harpist who someone who's kind of a an interesting new music person who plays the harp kind of differently, much more aggressively than a lot of other people and also yeah, was faculty at Mills College uh, at their music program at least up until recently I don't know because my friend went to this uh, this Mills College program which is famous because like Laurie Anderson went to it like many years ago and they have a bunch of like, uh-huh. like Pauline Oliveros taught there and all this kind of stuff so I went to like a lot of their concerts or whatever because I was jealous about the fact that I didn't have the money <laughs> or, or whatever to attend something like that so but anyway um, their like program got Shut down or I think the whole College is getting sh- I don't know exactly what's happening But anyway Um, and then the She has a like a choir from Greenland Just people that she auditioned Although on the album it's Like just a choir from the UK Who sh- they just cut up different Pieces and sort of
3: I was gonna say It sounds sampled I, I thought she maybe Got a stock <laughs> no yeah it's Yeah they they had them
0: saying but then they They cut them up and sampled mm-hmm. a lot of That stuff so but yeah so with that, uh, we should get to going song by song. Yes. The
3: first song is Hidden
0: Place. Yeah, again,
3: a really like off-kilter kind of creepy place to start.
0: <laughs> yeah, the iconic opening, the you know, very glitchy.
1: True side says card of care your love was sent to me i'm not sure what to do with it or where to put say
0: i don't even know what exactly it's a, it might be a sample from from like some kind of string performance
3: it does it sounds like some strings that have been like put onto an ovation and she, she's hitting the buttons yeah
0: yeah it has that sound
3: but there is a like the the hook The do do
0: do is is from arnold schoenberg's transfigured Night, opus Four. Oh, yeah that's the only thing that's like really significantly sampled or like referenced in this album as far as i know yeah that's the big noticeable one but yeah i i don't know how do you
3: how would you describe how this sounds i don't it's difficult it sounds like it sounds haunted yeah it sounds like one of those like there's a a period of very arty aesthetic horror movies in like the aughts Mm -hmm. and the early teens um and it sounds like it would be a song in one of those it's almost like witchy (laughs) which is like has a lot of connotations to it but i'm not sure what how else i would describe it especially with like the chanting background vocals
0: yeah you have the la 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 and then you have the the beats which are kind of like just a little unsettling they're like you know they kind of like what is it called uh, low pass filter or whatever like the treble is
3: entirely removed from it yeah right right it's just it's such a weird it's such a weird foot to start on it definitely feels like getting lost in the woods
0: yeah especially the string riff that's from transfigured night the do-do-do-do-do it's like a big crescendo like it's funny because like bjork talks about like how this album is her like being very domestic having going very internal having no energy but like a a Bjork album that has like no energy is still like intensity level 10 or 11
3: compared to other artists it gets like especially like later on the strings get kind of oppressive (laughs) they really crest to a point where they they fill out almost all the sonic space
0: yeah it does sound like going through a dark forest i think that's where i get the disney horror (laughs) description from right the only way i know how to it is like the alice in wonderland like we talked about this with the boards of canada episode a little bit but it's even more true here of just like you know
3: stepping through the looking glass (laughs) or whatever for sure yeah there's like a a fairy tale aspect to it which like it's it's kind of cool i mean it feels like there is to some degree that disnification of sound was like a thing at the time, right? Cuz you had That's true. Softbolt and you had Mercury Revs, uh, deserter songs and then you have this, but like I like this version of it the best because it's used in such a in a way that really lends atmosphere and like texture to the song. The song what I love the most about Vespertine and it's really going to be apparent on the next song is like just how textural it is. Hmm. you almost like physically feel it
0: <laughs> yeah and this is a song that like a lot of songs they're i don't know it just kind of like peters out a little bit at the end like it just kind of very slowly fades out i also like want to mention that that one synth that goes boo 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 I don't know. It's kind of a sp- it's hard to describe because it is like kind of a sound of a sound that you would be more likely to hear on like an earlier Bjork album, but the way it's used there it, it again sounds just unsettling. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I don't know it's a a really good opener for like really as a tone setter
0: yeah and if you're the that place that I lived in 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 Oberlin my landlord was a furry and I mentioned that I was like really into listening to this album he's like he called the song he said we go to the kitten place where everyone has a kitten face and now I have that burned in my brain (laughs) forever
3: that's so specific (laughs)
0: yeah well like i said he was a furry he had like furry art throughout his apartment yeah i mean god bless him yeah well he kicked me out at some point but anyway (laughs)
3: anyway you know landlord's gonna landlord (laughs) yeah exactly i don't care if you're a furry you're still a landlord
0: so the video for this uh, song isn't that interesting to me actually the videos for most of the vespertine songs are a little bit more subdued it's just like a weird like well, subdued. I mean, pagan poetry is... Aside from that one, there's like a weird like snaky blobby thing that's kind of going up and down throughout her face and it's like very zoomed in. That's pretty much it. But yeah, it's still a Bjork video, so it's still it's still pretty interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, she
3: doesn't do like bad videos.
0: But yeah, as far as like the lyrics, like I, I don't even... I don't think Bjork is, like, necessarily a strong lyricist. No. The songs of hers that have the strongest lyrics tend to be written by other people, which we'll get into. But it is interesting to me how it's like, you know, now I've been slightly shy and I could smell a pinch of hope. But then she's 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 talking about presumably her partner or whatever. He's the beautifulest, fragilest, still strong, dark and divine, and the littleness of his movements hides himself. He invents a charm that makes him invisible and she says can I hide there too and there's a kind of weird chopped up vocals where she says hide in the hair of him
1: a charm that makes him invisible hides in the
0: But it, it just like the reading the the words, it doesn't really, the sound doesn't really match with, I, I guess this is the problem that I've always had with this album is like the way that she describes this, you know, her partner and and like what the music is doing feel kind of at odds at times for me. This is
3: why, this is why I live life, not caring about lyrics. Um, because like yeah even the way she sings it doesn't really match and it's fairly heavily accented and it's very atmospheric so it's pretty easy to gloss over except for like the handful of phrases that really come out mm-hmm. it's also why that Chris guy review is so bonkers to me because it's focusing on what I would what I think is the most minor part of the album yeah. I don't think the lyrics do a whole lot. Okay, so this is how she describes it. She says, Hidden Place
0: is sort of about how two people can create a paradise just by uniting. You've got an emotional location that's mutual, and it's unbreakable, and obviously it's make-believe. So you could argue that it doesn't exist because it's invisible, but of course it does. Mm-hmm. I can see that with some of the other songs on this album, but I, I don't know. It just... I, I <laughs> Like, especially given that she's talking presumably about her partner who she would end up having an incredibly messy divorce and singing, sue me, sue me, sue me. Yeah. To, like, I'm not going to try to imitate Bjork's voice. Um, It's a little, it's a little strange to me. I, I just can't quite, I think even at the time I had trouble with it.
3: I mean, literally the most effective lyrical moment to me on this album is the part that is not in English and pagan poetry that I don't understand. And and might just be nonsense because
0: sometimes she... It might just be nonsense.
3: Sometimes she says Icelandic, but apparently sometimes it's just nonsense. But it's like, it's the most cathartic vocal performance on the album. And like the actual meaning of the lyrics, I don't think matter to me, especially here because everything else is so meaningful. Like there's already so much like mood and meaning in the aesthetic and musical trappings of the album. Mm -hmm. You know, Hidden Place... As a title conveys so much about the sort of intimate mystery of the album aesthetically, like it doesn't have to. I don't have to know what 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 exactly
0: that she means. Yeah, it is one of those things that I think that's always been my biggest struggle with Bjork because, like, the music to me is unimpeachable most of the time, but the, especially on this album. But the, like, in terms of the overall thematic narrative elements, like, I'm much more kind of interested in an artist like Kate Bush where like every song is a short story a lot of the time or like Tori Amos where she's talking about her, I guess they got more abstract, (laughs) but like the earlier Tori Amos where she's just talking about fucked up stuff, you know. I can, I don't know, it's more relatable or I can connect with that aspect of it a little more than, but you know, she's never been a a person for words. Uh, Bjork is not like a, a words centric person
3: no she doesn't have to be no she she conveys a lot with vocal cadence and tone
0: okay so the next song is cocoon I love cocoon so much (laughs) this is the song where I can see yeah okay this is this is about sex or at least about intimacy at some level Mm -hmm. this is co-produced with Thomas Knack but uh, she said something actually in an interview recently about this where is it yeah that particular song the beat was done by Thomas Knack he's Danish and actually did click noises from the synth somebody was asking how they got like the clicking sounds she's just talking about the idea that the sound or idea of like technology breaking and how that sort of becomes beautiful and it takes you into this like mysterious territory that she feels like is comparable to like what happened when people discovered that you could make distorted guitars (laughs) be a thing but yeah So I I think that's kind of what she's going for. There's these sounds, a lot of, in this album, there's these sounds that are cut off and sort of break awkwardly, you know, very digital, almost ASMR-like somebody
3: describes on, on this Genius page. But yeah. Yeah, it's, again, yeah, it's extremely textural. It's extremely, like, it feels sort of like the ambient noise you would hear, like, in the woods or, like, with the cicadas around. Like, somebody sampled that ambient noise and made a song out of it.
1: I'm
0: surprised that, that ASMR people haven't gotten super into this album because this
3: song in particular just has that like very soft low synth. I was gonna say the synth tones on this are so interesting because a lot of the samples and percussion are really cold and clicky and like high and trebly, but the synths like are very low and warm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean without going into it too much, I said this with Boards of Canada, but it's like triply true alliteration Um, for Bjork of just like so many of the sounds and textures and themes of her music have definitely been inspirational for me. And I think especially like those kind of like lower synth tones that are very like, feel almost like natural or some kind of elemental thing that's just kind of there. Very like earthy It's pretty calming Honestly Although It's complicated By a few things On this album But Compared to the previous song It is quite calming
3: Yeah it's Again There's this Intimacy I think Especially in the vocal performance Where it sounds like She's kind of whispering Into your ear Mm. Speaking of ASMR And it's Such an abstract song It feels I'm trying to think Of the best way To describe this It feels pretty progressive rather than repetitious mm. like it's it's moving on a path rather than circling itself
0: yeah it has these kind of repeated patterns like there's the doom 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 like who
1: would a beauty this image
0: It's so hard to describe. <laughs> it's so hard to describe the music in a lot of these. I don't know. For someone who's heard this album like so many times, it, it is really difficult for me to like
3: convey exactly what it sounds like. I think what I love about it is how elemental it is, how about how it's just clicks and synth and her voice. I think there's definitely some maximal. I mean, especially on the next song, there's some maximalist arrangement. So to have this kind of very quiet intimate lull and i think this is actually a place too where this the contrast of the sonics with the lyrics just being kind of about fucking works pretty well like it it adds sort of a starkness
0: yeah i mean you really notice you do notice like i always really notice the first line who would have known that a boy like him would have entered me lightly restoring my blisses
3: yeah exactly so it, it feels the erotic part feels almost like Quiet and innocent in a really like interesting way. Oh, apparently she said the lyrics to this song were like a whole diary that she had
0: to edit out like ninety percent of. I think part of it is like maybe she's a little bit uncomfortable being this intimate. Although if you uh, if you look at the video, it's just uh, naked Bjork uh, with the kind of strange hairdo uh, and this.
3: There's a lot of Naked Bjork in these videos. Yeah, and
0: this, like, red thread that's coming out of her tits uh, and sort of, like, wrapping around her until it, like, suffocates slash uh, cocoons her. Yeah. Good video. (laughs) But the sound also is, like, the higher up synths they always sound to me like it's like plants growing. You know, it's like if you watch like a video of a sped up plant or like moss growing on a log or something, things just kind of growing out like and the root systems kind of developing like it it sounds like it's not it's like kind of like the cycles of nature or something like there's so, there's something that feels like natural and kind of cyclical about it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But yeah there's still a little bit of like i don't know i still a little bit of a distance for me of being able to connect to the lyrics maybe because i am not interested in men in a sexual
3: manner but i i don't know uh (laughs) i i don't know again i think it's a song that is lent most of its profundity by its aesthetics yeah to me I could see that. I feel that way about the whole album, but but here
0: is, it's a big part. True. Okay, next song is It's Not Up To You. And this is much more like kind of in the theme of where she talks about I wake up and the day feels broken. And mm-hmm. when I was like listening to this album all the time, you know, that is how I felt. So, this I think almost it's kind of like the thing that I most connected to. And, you know, during that period, I was also, like, not really going outside a lot. And when she says the evening, I've always longed for, like, I would stay up all night and then go to bed during the day. I was, like, you know, 22 or whatever. But I can relate to that uh, lyric, I guess.
3: Yeah, this song feels like the most defiant thing on the album, on an album that tends to be fairly introverted. I think there's something really kind of dramatic and outspoken, and it's not up to you that works is kind of surprising to hear it this early this
0: has more of the bigness of like a, a track on homogenic yeah especially when the part where she's like uh just lean into the crack and it will tremble ever so nicely like it's you know hits that very like operatic sort of note and the strings like the harps are like crescendoing at the same time
1: just look-
0: Yeah, it hits like a peak. Her performance is much more amped up than in the previous two tracks.
3: Yeah, especially that crescendo at the end. It goes just when I talk about the strings being almost oppressive, like the they're beautiful, like Disney E strings, but like they're so loud and they do swallow everything else up. Well, it does have a similar thing of
0: hidden place. Like it, it's like the strings are like boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom. It's it's. If you heard that in isolation it's almost like a death march or something. It has that kind of tempo and feeling to it.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: It could still happen.
0: Which of course like is complicated by the harp and like the much more trebly feminine sounding instruments, but you know with the backbone of that it's like there's an ominous kind of feeling to it which I mean, it makes a lot more sense now that I know that she was writing this in the midst of working on fucking Dancer in the Dark, so this this whole album.
3: Yeah, I mean, It's Not Up To You is absolutely something I would scream to Lars von Trier, <laughs> if given the choice and a chance. But, you know, so this is, for me, very much like a no-skips album, but its pacing is a little weird. It does feel like putting It's Not Up To You this soon is a like a wild place to put your emotional peak, especially since right after this is like "Undo" and then "Pagan Poetry," but like it feels of a part with like how the album ends, like with the choir sounds and like almost a sense of defiant optimism.
0: Yeah, I think I've come to appreciate that song. It was originally kind of one of my least favorite in the early going of the album, probably my least favorite in the first like four or five tracks. But I think I've gotten. Maybe it's just the line, like I wake up and the day feels broken, but I feel that so much. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I have. Maybe it's because I have. You know, my body often feels like it's barely functioning, but um. <laughs> Mood. Yeah, that's it's not up to you. I mean, that's a good line too. I her whole thing. I mean, it and it connects with the next song too where on Undo she says it's not meant to be a
3: strife, it's not meant to be
0: a struggle.
3: Yeah uh, which was quoted by Mount Erie. Oh and um, the song he did with Julie Dwaran, it's not an album I like very much but but it's on there. Lost Wisdom Oh, Voice and Headphones I believe Oh, okay.
0: I might have heard that it's
1: not- a strife.
4: Not
1: meant to be a
4: struggle
3: they basically take the it's not meant to be a strife, it's not meant to be a struggle uphill, and that's like the mantra of the song Voice and Headphones by Mount Erie and Julie Dwarr and Fred Squire of Eric's Trip. Well, I know that Phil Elvram
0: is a big fan of Bjork. He said so multiple times. You you can tell.
3: That that was released like seven years later, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So
0: this one, Like Cocoon, was also co-produced with Thomas Knack. And there is kind of a similar sonic space. I think this was my favorite song when I first... Or at least my favorite of the first several tracks when when I first started listening to the album. I would listen to this track over and over again. Just the opening, like... Mantra. I don't know. Something nice about the rhythm, like there's the the sense that go boom, boom, ba-dum, boom. And then there's Mm -hmm. even her like breaths are kind of like synchronized. Like when she's singing, it's like, it's not meant to be a struggle. And it's like, you know, it's like her taking breaths. It's kind of like in multiple ears or whatever. It kind of creates this like rhythmic pattern, but it's very... Subdued at the same time. It's not like an aggressive pattern. There's something it, it does feel like a mantra, and I don't know. I connected with it, I think, a little bit more than something like Cocoon.
3: Yeah, I can I can see that. I mean, there's something um it does feel like breathing into a bag anxiety attack, you're like talking to yourself to calm yourself down. Maybe it's because I have anxiety attacks all the fucking time. <laughs> yes, it's for you. <laughs> You know, and if you're bleeding undo and if you're sweating undo and if you're crying there's sort of a definitely a talking myself up because things are going terribly to it and it does and again it has like much like cocoon that feeling of being in a quiet empty place
0: mm-hmm I like how this builds with the strings, like especially when she's saying, I'm praying to be in a generous mode. The strings are doing this whole thing. They become sort of more of, like again, it's like plants growing up over top of everything else. They become much more dominant and much more, it's kind of like the emotions are kind of, and feelings are just kind of absorbing and taking over everything else.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: I'm praying. To be in a generous mode, the kindness kind, the kindness kind, to share. to share.
0: It's like if you're trying to like meditate or something, and and all these like crazy thoughts or feelings are starting to come in and kind of <laughs> try to place themselves on top of like what you're trying to reassure yourself with
3: yeah med- meditative is a good way to put it yeah like in a very literal way yeah no undo is fantastic and i think um it also
0: like hits a climax you know where she keeps singing the same thing but there's the choir and there's the you know strings are we're in full-on disney mode or disney horror
3: mode <laughs> right
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I really like this song.
3: Yeah, it's really good. It's it's a song I think I I was kind of the opposite. When I first got into this album, it sort of fell. It it didn't catch my attention the way that like it's not up to you or pagan poetry does. But the more I listen to this album, the more Undo works for me.
0: Yeah, I would listen to this song and cry many, many times. Uh, And we recommend you do that at home. (laughs) It still works Some of her, yeah I, I can't really control it with some of her music It's one of the things that it's like It's not necessarily even the sentiment of the song Although in this song a little bit more so But it's just like the music
3: Is so intense It's really intense I mean, I also had my sit down and cry Moments, but it's with pagan poetry Which is next, which is also extremely intense Yeah Like it really, the music doesn't hold back It is trying to dig into your chest
0: yeah well it's just the idea of like you can't force this like you you have to there has to be a better there has to be another way it's kind of sad too because bjork has this thing throughout her career of like she is trying to like solve all the world's problems right Like, you know, with her biophilia project or... It it always, like, there's an element of utopianism to it where... So where... And where she's saying, I'm praying to be in a generous mode, the kindness kind, the kindness kind. Like, it's like something that, like, you know, she'll continually say throughout her work is like, oh, just be generous, open yourself up or whatever. But, you know, that's also the same woman who ended up being in a relationship with Matthew Barney that ended horribly or ended up, you know, in some of the situations that she's ended up in. So it's like, and there is this kind of thing about like femininity and like this, this idea that like, you have to always be the better person. You will have to always like have the answers. You have to always be the most stable. And, and I think like, that's one thing that made me eventually like a little bit alienated with some of her work because she she almost like preaches it in the way that it lines up with, you know, just that feeling of like, you know, surrendering and just like, I don't know, being open and but also kind of being passive in a way. And I don't know how to summarize that exactly. But I think when I first started transitioning, that was a sentiment that I was really feeling. But towards a certain point, it's like someone who is a performer who like gives so much of themselves to the point where some of their lyrics are almost like giving life advice right
3: <laughs> there's a limit to that because then i think there's a limit to any person there's a point where you get to know them and you've known too, you know too much about them
0: yeah well and bjork gives you so many avenues into her you know right
3: literally and figuratively <laughs>
0: Yeah, much more so than, like, an artist like Kate Bush, you know, who is much more, like... Guarded. Closed off and whatever. But, I mean, it's the same thing. It's, like, I thought for years that, like, because I was acquainted with several people who had either met her before or had, and had stories about her, meeting her or, like, had worked with her in some way, I was obsessed with the this idea that she was gonna, like, discover my music and, you know, call me up one day and be like, Liz, would you please... <laughs> gonna work on my new album. <laughs> That's my attempt on uh a Bjork voice.
3: Incredible. <laughs>
0: But I was, like, obsessed to that degree, and it was, like, unhealthy. It was, because, like, you know, it is, like, kind of a pipe dream when you're in a, a, a bad situation or whatever. But she was one of the only artists who I felt like I was really, like, vibing with at that level. And it's, like, there's no way to reach an artist who's kind of at that level. So when somebody also, like, does so much of their work is, like, opening themselves up in that way, it kind of... It kind of it lends itself to disappointment
3: and being let down by it I guess for sure I mean I think I think it's not like being like getting really obsessed with Bjork is a unique thing I think a lot of people do and not even just like the one creepy example we can all think of yeah because I think I think much like Tori Amos and, and her sometimes very enthusiastic fan base Bjork does reveal a lot of herself in a way that is welcoming and encouraging in a way mm-hmm. to people who are not usually targeted, yeah, by art. And so, I mean, it's, and especially at the time, right? I mean, you know, there's we we talked about why are, why are people like scandalized by Bjork, and part of it is that Bjork was weird and public, yeah, in a way that wasn't like acknowledged.
0: Well, she brings, like, so much under her umbrella, but it's, like, so much that doesn't really have any space to exist in that kind of, like, pseudo-mainstream context.
3: Right, exactly. I mean, it's, like, you know, you can complain about, like, not hearing Matmos enough on the album, but, like, at the time, the idea of Matmos, you know, these two weird queer guys who, like, make concept albums about specific samples, like, getting on an album that would chart is wild. yeah. And continues to be a thing and like you know a lot of her work appeals on that level I think even outside of the lyrics just in the audaciousness of it and in the goals as stated Mm -hmm. I guess that's the problem too is
0: like you're such an embodiment of this kind of like art pop art world like you're this like living thing and you're the only person like that who exists literally because you know I mean I know she's heavily inspired by like Kate Bush and all that but like you know she's somebody who is actively working and continuing to do
3: things and continuing to collaborate in that way she's on a level that like the closest comparison I can think of really is like David Bowie yeah of like that kind of like art and pop cachet but she's a little bit closer to the ground
0: and a little bit less of a mainstream pop artist, at least, you know, at this point than nowadays, than yeah. David Bowie. I
3: think the other thing about Bjork, though, I remember reading in an interview, Jamie Stewart explaining why he, he sings like that. Mm-hmm. And it was because it was something like his dad told him, like, if you don't go all the way every time, you won't hit those times when it works. <laughs> right. So you have to go all the way every time because sometimes it's going to work and that would never happen if you weren't doing that and sometimes i feel like that's bjork like bjork is doing like not in the same way jamie stewart is right but bjork is giving it her all and sometimes it's embarrassing and sometimes it doesn't work so well and sometimes it's feels preachy and pretentious but it's because she does that that she's able to hit the heights that she does
0: yeah she's a you know you don't you
3: don't you don't get something like medulla by being normal
0: Yeah. She says she's a shoot your shot artist. She does it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, um, it's difficult to engage. I think, especially when you're like, I think I was like, so in need of like role models or people that I could identify with and see myself in. And of course, like Bjork became like the number one, person because you know she's writing this like highly acclaimed sort of artistic music but also making electronic music which is something that I like know how to do right and so it's it was easier for me to like be like huh this is you know this is much more like who I am in a way or at least embodiment of like how I feel about some of my own music than like any other pop artist that I can think of so i don't know i think that's part of it but it just i don't, like i said my relationship with her <laughs> music is very complicated
3: it's fraught I, I i get it i mean i think to be a big bjork fan is to have a complicated relationship with it i mean especially like if you're getting into it at, at a vulnerable time and yeah it appeals on that level
0: i think that was part of it too
3: Cool. (laughs) So track five. Yeah. Pagan poetry. (laughs) This, I mean, okay. So we just had uh, a very long emotional discussion on the effects Bjork has on us. This is the song that makes me sob every time. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, obviously partially because it's it's wrapped up in like, you know, I just broke up with my girlfriend. I'm going to blare this on my car driving down the highway at like 90 miles an hour but it's also just like i think it's so cathartic especially like in this album like the way it builds and it climaxes and then it like retreats into itself there is a deep primal thing here no pun intended with the pagan poetry or whatever especially like Part of that one is that it's like a more traditionally pop song for this album. It's got a verse, chorus, verse thing going on, which is not the case for a lot of the songs on this album, but so it has some familiar hooks, but also like the way it's constructed around this like music box and chanting Bjorks, like the, it's not the choir on this, it's just other Bjorks mm-hmm. so that it feels like both startlingly personal and weirdly epic like even the video, like <laughs> as long as you don't think about the fact that she's fucking Matthew Barney.
0: Yes. There's like some. Oh, I see. So there's like footage of her having sex with Matthew Barney and there are like some bits that are not blurred out, but like
3: mostly it's blurred out. Yeah. Or there's the one with like all the topography masking.
0: Yeah. Is there a fully like uncensored version of the video, or is it? I don't think
3: so. But okay, what makes it work? I mean, what one you can you can see what's happening. Yeah, but it's also like at the point where she goes wordless and just starts like yelling mm-hmm. is when the topography fades off and it's just you know Bjork with these like pearls sewn into her skin, like standing naked. Yeah, the, in front of a fan. The Alexander
0: McQueen thing. Yeah, uh, apparently is. Designed by Alexander McQueen. Yeah, it looks pretty hardcore. It's, it's like so
3: hardcore. It was so like it was the to like 14 or 15-year-old Max, that was such art shit. Yeah. Like it was just like, oh my god, yes, this is the primal essence of this feeling. Yeah,
0: just the giant fucking gnarly piercings in her back.
3: Yes. Just screaming into the wind. Like, it's God, it's so good. <laughs>
0: That is the most like memorable video of the 3 for the album
3: although oh f- I would argue it's the best of the three
0: yeah it's the best of the three although the video for it's in our hands which is a vespertine era song that she did for her like greatest hits a year later yeah that's my favorite uh video of the period that's a spike jones video though i just wanted to mention that that yeah that's a really good video yeah that video is so good but anyway yeah i mean this this song is so weird because it's like it's so dark it's so dark that's this is the thing like but she's saying i love him i love I love him I love him I
3: love but to me like until I was told the actual story my assumption was like it was you were broken up with or deluded yeah like that kind of chanting not like a real authentic like oh I really love this man but like you know like the desperate way one says like but I love him when they're gone.
1: I love him, 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 this time. She loves him. She loves I'm gonna keep it to him. myself.
0: Well when she says she he makes me want to hand myself over, you know what I thought she said for a long time? It's hang myself. <laughs> or I thought she said hack myself up. Yeah,
3: it's uh, it, it, yeah, it's what it sounds like.
0: <laughs> it's weird cuz like again, I, I mean, she might have felt however she felt at the time, but it's hard not to listen to Volnicura and then go back and listen to this and not feel like there's something going on there.
3: But even at the time, it was so dark.
1: She she loves she loves
3: love even at the time, this felt like the darkest Björk album. Mm-hmm. And this was after, again, like, you know, the apparently borderline unlistenable pluto um like Uh, one of her best songs one of their best songs it's so good um but like and it's not like the video does anything to dispel that because the metaphor right is you're hurting yourself for this it's like it feels very like visceral and painful
0: yeah it just like the concept of her talking about how apparently this song was potentially She's talking
3: about the darkest pit in me yeah
0: but she's she's saying I I find an accurate copy of blueprint of the pleasure in me. Apparently it's it might have originally been called blueprint although it came out the same year as the blueprint by JC. Uh, so maybe sh- she changed it for that reason, or maybe not. I don't know. But it's just weird. Again, it's weird cuz it's like I didn't think that like falling in love was supposed to be so dark. I mean like I get it like there's complicated feelings and it brings up all these kinds of things in you but I mean, it's just hard not to evaluate it in the context of, you know, her later breakup with Matthew Barney, but also the, all the dancer in
3: the dark stuff. Yeah. I mean, the music is dark. Music and lyrics are rarely written at the same time. I could see like the music being written during a dark time and the lyrics being written a little later. Okay. And that being the issue, not that I think it's an issue. I think it's what makes the album great. Like, cause here's the thing. You can tell me all you want and it can even be true. That this is a love album for you know her marriage to Matthew Barney, and I still won't believe you or agree because like my relationship to this album and how this album has presented itself to me for years is so contrary to that notion of love and ecstasy and what it feels like is very much the madness and darkness that love evokes. Mm-hmm. Like you know sometimes feel- being in love feels like being insane.
0: Yeah, especially the when she says he makes me want to hand myself
3: over, she just like loses it, you know. Yeah, she just yeah. I mean, this is like one of her strongest vocal performances from somebody who's always doing that shit. The way that the backing vocals chant "she loves him" sounds mocking to me. Mm Hmm. Like a Greek. Yeah, she has the the choir do that on her like live
0: performance. By the way, you can find like a full. Like I think B- Bjork at the Royal Opera House, a full era concert. Which one is on the in the
3: live box set? I'm not sure, but you can find the whole like footage on YouTube. It's yeah. She did a a box set of like live versions of debut, post. Okay, okay. Homogenic and Vespertine. Actually, I don't know if she did debut. I think it might have just been post Homogenic and Vespertine, which are interesting listens. Anyways, I mean and this is just like this is getting into something we've been talking about this whole time, is like how gut-wrenching this album is in spite of being fairly minimal and atmospheric and really when we talk about what's going on with pagan poetry it's like it's not dense it's a music box and it's a bass, yeah thud you know it's not maximalist but to the degree that like it's not up to you is but it is still massive in a way in its way
0: yeah, like on a lot of others. I mean, she talks about this in her and the the documentary about there's a lot of like tiny sounds to a lot of these beats. There's a lot more going on than you could necessarily even perceive because the sounds are so tiny. Yes. And I think that's why like when they performed in an opera house, you know, they could sort of pan out the sound and it wasn't all coming from one place, so you could you know, you kind of sit and enjoy and kind of experience it more passively. Like, this is a, this is an album
3: that is really designed for headphones. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The atmospherics of it are so interesting and well done. You know, nothing's looped or nothing feels looped.
0: I think that's part of the reason I got so into this album, too, is I think that that was the first period when I got really nice, when I started to have nicer headphones. <laughs> Because, like, growing up, I didn't, you know, I didn't have... I had just whatever default, like, Sony $20, $30 headphones, Yeah, the
3: flattier ones. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But, like, that was the first time I bought, like, you know, sort of audiophile adjacent headphones. So, I
3: think that might have been part of it, of, like, why I got so into this album. It's something I love when people do it, which is, like, to put all of these small things into the sonic landscape of an album that rewards close listening um mm-hmm. uh, without relying on it to be effective. Like I think a lot of these songs work without headphones, but there's so much to be absorbed with them. They could save your life too, so. They could absolutely <laughs> save your life, but only if somebody puts those headphones on you. <laughs> okay. Uh, was-
0: <laughs> um okay, so we Frosty. have Frost- Frosty. It's an instrument uh it's a music box. She did the arrangement and it was programmed by Jack her on um i really like this arrangement it's very me too i mean it's it's very carnival-esque but it has that kind of frozen <laughs> uh feeling to it yeah the,
3: the music box was in like plexiglass right just to, sh- to the sound tenny
0: yeah i think so <laughs> I mean, it was at the... Okay, so I should say, I did see her MoMA exhibit in 2015. And the exhibit... I saw that too. It was (laughs) terrible. It was really bad. It was so bad. And honestly, one of the reasons I started falling out with Bjork, I was literally crying when I got out of the exhibit because I was like, why is this so... Why would Bjork do this to me? (laughs) I mean... It's just like you walk into a room and there's some, you know, her, she's talking about whatever and you just see, oh, she wore this outfit sometime. Yes. And it's like, okay, great. Uh, you know. Or
3: there's there's the room that was just showing music videos.
0: <laughs> it was so, fu- the MoMA fucking sucks. I'm sorry. I've been there like multiple the MoMA times. The does suck. And it's, yeah, I don't know. Like I've heard that supposedly there was, I heard people compare it very unfavorably to there was a David Bowie exhibit at the VNA, which is supposedly a lot
3: better around the same time. I remember being shocked at how little there was there yeah especially for how much the moment charges like it's kind of yeah i got in for free thankfully because somebody that i knew how to uh, <laughs> knew somebody with the them. one thing i remember is there's like one video from like volna and it was like it sounds a little different depending on where you stand in the room yeah like, yeah
0: i did that too yeah and cool they had the biophilia app which for a while i was obsessed with the biophilia app i was like showing it to games people and was like you need to you need to you need to look at this look at what bjork's doing it's
3: fine i hated that app a little bit <laughs> oh i think it's fine I, it's probably great but when, when i was messing with it i was just like i don't this is very cumbersome and i don't like the sounds <laughs>
0: Well, it's from an era of, like, the early 2010s is, like, when, like, novelty phone apps were much more of a thing. Whereas, like, now phone apps are just a thing that you have to fucking download to go to a concert. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you have to download apps now. They, like, force you to fucking Dice FM or whatever that I had to download for to go to this fucking electronic Con tomorrow oh dear or dice or whatever it's called well, anyway bjork's always been ahead
3: of the game you know
0: <laughs> i mean it's i i think it's i think it's fun i i don't think i dislike biophilia as much as you do but i don't hate i don't hate by i mean it's not volta like there's there's worse bjork albums but like oh um, <laughs> i kind of like volta anyway <laughs> we can we can move on but yeah i think like honestly that horrible fucking exhibit was one of the things that started to turn me off to her as like a, a figure I think the other thing is just realizing that she's <laughs> a millionaire out of different different material circumstances and the idea that I had that I would somehow like interface with her and her world at some point that you know that would like it just did never happened and it's the same like fantasy of like if you're making stuff I saw this tweet about someone being like, who's, like, a DIY Chicago person, I think, or, like, an underground electronic music person tweeting about, like, how to get signed to Warp, and then and then below it said, you he won't. won't. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, it's really sad and depressing, but that is kind of, like, the material reality, especially if you're not, like, inherently, like, well-connected in various scenes. And I think the fact that I had, like, just vague enough proximity to people who'd worked with her or whatever... Like, I've worked... I've done music for somebody's game who like also worked with Arca like before that point and you know all that kind of things like that it's like I think it's enough to like when you go to <laughs> going to that Mova exhibit just really set me off because it's like just seeing like your fucking expensive outfits that you can get to wear it's just like I don't know <laughs> anyway anyway
1: see her hand looking hard for a moment of shine. The next
0: song is Aurora, and I, I really like this song.
3: Aurora's amazing. Aurora's extremely good. It comes off of Frosty really well. It's got a great transition. I love the,
0: I'm pretty sure Matmos is responsible for the snow trudging sounds. That would make sense. Or they, they did beat programming in this song in general. Supposedly, they like she had asked them to sample some really weird things, like they mentioned in the documentary,
3: her asking them to like sample a, a Pussy Willow opening. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what you get Matmos for. You don't get them for lame samples. Yeah. You get them to sample an ass cheek.
0: <laughs> this is kind of going back to the, the good old Bjork staple of like, you know, she grew up in Iceland in these very open, expansive environments. That's how she developed her voice. And it's a very snowy place. So you can hear that in Aurora. I mean, it's just the sound of like being alone, like as the sun sets walking around in the snow. Mhm.
3: Very cinematic. That's definitely like the atmosphere I get throughout the whole album is some is like a vast empty tundra. <laughs> mhm. Just this feeling of space. Yeah. And and of emptiness and of like the very like almost unnatural quiet that happens when like it's snowing and it's muting everything.
0: This has like a a little bit more of like a restorative feeling to it. It's like I need to
3: We're getting onto the upswing of the album where it starts getting a bit more optimistic. Yeah,
0: I like the lyrics. Threading the glacier head, looking hard for moments of shine from twilight to twilight, heading for the sublime. Pretty good lyrics.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, this also has the, you know, ah. I can't do it, but you just know, put, the, put the, in the clip. Yeah. <laughs> she has. It has a vocal
3: hook that's just da 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 yeah. da, da da da. Yeah. <laughs>
0: She also says the nonsense line after Aurora, which isn't in in the lyrics. I don't know. It sounds like utter mundane or something like that. But I think it's just nonsense. Or it might be an Icelandic word.
3: I'm not sure. But anyway. It's so hard to tell. Yeah. But
0: her singing is much more, you know, giant scale operatic in this. We're getting back to that kind of Bjork in this song. Which is amazing.
3: Which I think it's good because it's such a contrast with the spindly percussion and plucks.
0: Yeah, uh, this was one of my favorites when I first heard the album too because when she's describing like a natural environment, you can really envision it in your head. She just captures some element of nature like very well in her yeah. work in general. Joga has a similar vibe. Yeah, and just the like the image of Aurora Borealis is something I've always been captivated by since I was a, a tiny kid, so... A tiny tot. A tiny tot. Yeah. And I grew up in a fucking place where it snows all the time. <laughs> I grew up in Ohio. So any songs about, like, snow and winter and, like, things like that, uh, you know, like Tori Amos's Winter, for
3: example, Indeed. tend to get to me because it gets pretty fucking cold in the Midwest sometimes. Uh, it does. I can tell you that right now. It's, that's still happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> has not stopped. <laughs> this also has the... Ch- This has the music box in it as well. Yes. And the, you know, I'm a big fan of the very, like, pizzicato, plucky, music boxy nature of all these songs. You know, it's a good texture. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: so next we have An Echo, A Stain. Probably the most mysterious song on this album, (laughs) I would say.
3: It's it's probably the most abstract, for sure. The
0: lyrics are a little disturbing, but in a kind of a non- explicit way it's just like what they
3: imply because it's (laughs) non-consensual
0: well yeah whatever they imply is disturbing
3: i mean yeah the the line i'm sorry you saw that uh you know what it feels like to me is it feels like one of those songs from the midsection of kid a oh yeah like a tree fingers or something
0: yeah i honestly like this album goes so much with kid
3: a in my mind i can see it for sure and this song has that sort of like abstract atmospheric quality to it where it feels almost like a sinister drift it has more of like a heavy beat it has that
0: like woo, woo, woo like that electronic beat yeah the wub wub and then there's the scratchy like processed like vocals like the you know sound sort of at the beginning which is a little disturbing <sighs> apparently the lyrics of the song oh, oh god this is according to genius so it might be completely wrong so
3: i'm sorry it's got a plus 79 on it so
0: Yeah, it's apparently based on Sarah Kane's play Crave Which is uh, like a non-linear poetic But yeah, the imagery of this Like the abstract imagery combined with the like A little bit more like When she says free falling It it does sound It sounds like a dream where you're falling into darkness
3: Yeah, it definitely It feels like floating
0: in space Has a really heavy choir to it too
3: Yeah, I don't know. I really like, even when a song isn't very song-y, the, the, the nature of the album is such that the atmosphere carries, is still so engaging. Mm-hmm.
0: I will say that the latter half of this album, just, I never could differentiate the songs when I first heard it at all. They kind of all blended together. And, you know, as as I got more into the album, I almost- It is
3: ironically the most homogenous Bjork album.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But um I kind of like almost appreciate the second side of the album more now than than the first side, maybe just because I burned out of the first side. But uh yeah, so I I mean I like the song a lot. It grew on me, definitely. Yeah, it's I, I really enjoy it too. I like the part where it builds and then she says, I'm sorry you saw that. You know, that part mm-hmm. is really good. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry you saw that. I'm
0: sorry you did it. Yeah, next we have Sun in My Mouth, my absolute favorite lyrics of maybe any Bjork song Interesting. because she took it from an E.E. Cummings poem. <laughs> I'll just read the po- the because it's a adapted from an e. e Cummings poem. I will wait out the lyrics are, I will wait out till my thighs are steeped in burning flowers. I will take the sun in my mouth. Ah, oh, such a perfect image, um, and leap into the ripe air alive with closed eyes to dash against darkness in the sleeping curves of my body. I shall enter fingers of smooth mastery, with chasteness of sea sea girls. I thought it was seagulls. Yeah
3: it's seagulls in the poem
0: (laughs) oh okay wow interesting it says seagulls in the actual lyrics book uh, for the cd so i assume she says seagulls um will i complete the mystery of my flesh oh i love that (laughs) question will i the way that she sings it too like it does have kind of a, a filmic quality like it it kind of gradually builds like this is a very disney uh climax
3: this is absolutely the most well among the most disney on here
0: It's become, like, one of my, I, this is the song that, like, makes me cry when I listen to it the most. It's good. I mean, it's, the swells on this album are very effective it's mercifully short too it's not like five minutes like almost every other track it's like mm-hmm. two minutes
3: 30 seconds it's a perfect it just ends when it needs to yeah it just says what it needs to say and gets out but again it's part of the greater atmosphere of the album and it works very well
0: yeah when she says will I complete the mystery and then she goes my flesh my flesh and then it kind of like peters out but in this like kind of magical way um, uh, it's a perfect musical moment I don't know I love that track so next we have
3: heirloom we're getting towards the end of the album now uh yes we're in this sort of last trio of songs which all feel like kind of the sun breaking or the clouds breaking
0: this is probably the track of the second half that stands out most on its own yeah
3: it has the weirdest bass line on the album
0: yeah it just and it starts with a beat
3: uh, a pretty like f- straightforward beat just the do, 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 it's do, a, do, a very do, like um like the kind of drum machines you would find on an old hammond organ <laughs> Yeah, it does sound like a Hammond organ. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, like the CR seventy eight or whatever that old Roland drum machine was. Anyways, it's very clicky.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it has the, it has more of a, a obvious drum texture. It has the you know sounds. But then, you know, it does also have some of that synth, the kind of undo or or cocoon synth a little bit in it. But it's a little bit more propulsive and percussive. It's like it's it's psyching you up a little bit more.
3: Mm -hmm. It
0: is a
3: it's it's a song that's always felt like faintly sinister to me.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, I can see that. This song was a little bit sinister to me when I first downloaded the album because it had like uh glitches in it and I never re-downloaded it. So for years I just listened
3: like this is the track that had like two or three random skips in it. Oh my god. <laughs> just like the uh just like the Intended Oval albums. <laughs> <laughs> so i i do think it had a slightly sinister feeling just through that it's
0: like oh this is the track with the skip in it <laughs> amazing uh well she talks about having a, a recurring dream of you know losing her voice and the swallowing gl- glowing lights i mean it is a, a little bit of a slightly disturbing
3: imagery mm-hmm. yeah it's and it's i think also where it is in the album like coming after echo a standing sun in my mouth which are fairly lyrically abstract songs also mm-hmm. I think that's maybe that's why I like the
0: the second half of the album better is it, it gets full into just like dream yeah. territory not trying to speak to something in particular being a little bit more vague and ambiguous all that dream logic yeah I don't know I like the image of <laughs> her mother and son baking uh, some warm glowing lights yeah it's cute <laughs> It is kind of cute, and her she has an ongoing fear of like losing her voice through for vocal nodes and stuff. She's had to have surgery for it multiple times. I think because she has that fear, her voice is remarkably still, you know, amazing at fifty six,
4: mm-hmm.
0: almost as much as it was, you know, you know, versus like an artist like Joanna Newsom who had to entirely change the way that she sung midway into her career or like even like a Tom York I mean if you listen to more recent (laughs) Tom York stuff it's all like falsetto there's no like body behind the you know versus like some of his earlier stuff I imagine some of that comes from vocal nodes and just like not you know like getting older and she's somebody who's like her voice matters so fucking much to her that you know that she's tried to do as much as she can to maintain it yeah
3: thank god it's a it's a national treasure. Yeah. From our NATO allies, Iceland. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's what that's
0: what the Matthew Broderick said when he was introducing uh the Sugar Cubes when they played on Saturday Night Live. He's like, all the way from our NATO allies in Iceland.
3: <laughs> Incredible.
0: Hello, this is Liz just interjecting with an important detail that I missed previously doing research about this song. And that is that actually the entire instrumental part is basically just, or it really is just a track by uh, this artist, Consol, uh, otherwise known as Martin Gretschmann, who was a member of the band The Notchwist for a while. He's a German musician. But yeah, the song called Crab Craft, which was released on an album called Rocket in the Pocket that he released in 1998 is literally the exact same instrumental. I mean, supposedly Bjork recreated it, but there's almost no point in comparing the audio between the two because it sounds almost like virtually identical. Um, I think Bjork just was wanting to live the crab life, you know, because that's the next stage of evolution for all beings. So, I mean, it makes sense. I assume Bjork wrote the... uh, Vocal melody for it And it's basically unchanged There's no um, strings Or anything over top of it Which honestly is probably a good call But yeah, it really fits in with the rest of the album So it was kind of a surprise to hear that But you can look up the song Crab Craft uh, By Console And you can hear it So if you ever want a karaoke heirloom There's an easy way to do it Uh, But yeah Okay, then we have Harm of Will This is probably my least favorite track The lyrics are written by Harmony Corrine. I didn't know that. I hate Harmony Corrine. Yeah. Supposedly, they're about Will Oldham, which I don't know if that's true. And this also, whole combination
3: like, of words is is poison to me. And also,
0: like Will Oldham, yeah, like he's the guy who like hyped up R. Kelly for like f- fucking ten years or whatever. I, I just like, don't like Will Oldham. I don't think Bonnie Prince Billy is good. I don't think it's good music. There's some, uh, what is their their singles compilation like Lost Blues
3: or whatever? I think that album is really good. I just feel like you you couldn't come up with a more obnoxious thing to me. I think that's more obnoxious to me than Harmony Corinne writing about Will Oldham. Yeah. That sucks. I didn't know that, and that makes this song worse.
0: Yeah, and I'm not really a big fan of the lyrics, although they are very uh, explicit, the,
3: especially
0: the lyric, if he has chosen the point yeah. while she is under him, then leave her coyly placed crouch sucking him yeah. I can't believe people let Harmony Corinne
3: make art. Apparently, she was friends with him. Uh, she married Matthew Barney. She doesn't have good taste in directors. <laughs> well, you know, she's friends with some people who seem nice, too. So, I don't know. I guess she also got like Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones to do her
0: videos. So, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it goes both ways, I guess. That said, gross. Yeah. There's really not much to say. It's kind of like a petering out song. It's fine. It's fine. It's it's
3: probably the least essential song for me. It doesn't work super well for me either. It works less well now. Good God, that might have ruined the song.
0: You know, like in terms of the arrangement, the music is still a a nine
3: or a 10 though, but yeah. I think coming where it does doesn't do it a lot of favors either because like Unison is so good.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of which, we have Unison.
3: Great song. It's so good. It's... It's so good. (laughs) It's the best thing to end the album with.
0: I mean, she always has good album closers, but this might be my favorite
3: one. It's probably mine too.
0: Yeah, because it encapsulates... It's either this or headphones, you know? Yeah, the song is like six minutes, and almost seven minutes long. And it has so much of what is in the previous song. She is talking about a relationship, but it's the one song about a relationship that actually sounds joyous and like mm-hmm. positive and like a sentiment that I can connect to. Just like the lyrics, let's unite tonight. We shouldn't fight. Embrace you tight. Let's unite tonight. So simple, but so perfect.
3: Yeah. It's sweet. Again, it feels like the the clouds breaking and the sun coming out.
0: Although, I have to sort of ignore her singing you discipliner domestically. I can obey all your rules and still be I I get that that's kind of like I mean, she probably wouldn't call it like a sub dom thing uh, or a top bottom thing.
3: <laughs> Are you the gardener or the discipliner?
0: Yeah, I get that, but like given that she's talking about Matthew Barney, it is a little bit hard for me to <laughs> yeah i uh, I just uh bad
3: bad men but thankfully that is not a very big part of the song and it actually samples oval which i didn't realize um oh yeah but makes sense Herodek off of systemish systemish
0: just a perfect chorus the it's just so iconic i don't know what else does the you know let's unite tonight. tonight
3: yeah no it's it's beautiful it's again it's got a hook which is not common on this album but but makes the song stand out and it, in terms of like the disneyness this feels like an epic and magical disney ness. Yeah. Almost.
0: This is this is one of the other songs that makes me cry when I listen to it. It's beautiful and it just it just works. It's the utopian side of Bjork. You know, she wants to she wants to resolve these things. She doesn't want to be somebody who antagonizes or, you know. Yeah. It's just nice. And at the end, you know, she goes full fucking multiple orgasm. (laughs) You know, the, uh, you know, when she goes (laughs) up high, like, yeah. Which is a perfect ending. She described this, like, what she was saying in her... She's like, I'm so programmed to just go on stage and have multiple orgasms.
4: <laughs>
3: oh, man.
1: I don't know if it was a local joke between me and myself, and maybe no one got the joke, but for me, it was the biggest challenge, in the, especially in the beginning of the tour, to just do a calm song and and do another calm song and, and do another calm song and... and and another calm song and then have a break and and to to not it's so like pro i'm so programmed to just have a multiple orgasm on stage like in three seconds
3: what a delightful job i mean that's how she sings though (laughs) yeah no listen i'm not saying she's wrong (laughs) so that's that's vespertine yeah
0: but that's the last song and then you know if you if you had the Japanese version, you heard Generous Palm Stroke, which is pretty much just her and Harp. She performed it live a lot around the same time, so it is. I think it's more like an addendum. I think unison is a perfect ending, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't even necessarily like recommend listening to it in the order of the album at the end like I would with that Boards of Canada bonus track. Yes. But it's a good song, but it is more about like, oh, uh, my husband is wonderful.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, he's wonderful and we fuck, and that's that's the theme of the album. That's what Chris Scout likes, <laughs> and now we know. <laughs> and then, of course, we have It's In Our Hands, uh, which she actually did with Drew Daniel
0: of Matmos, and I feel like that's a perfect addendum to this album. That was done for her Greatest Hits compilation, which came out a year later, uh huh. Uh, if you kn- already know about Björk and you haven't seen the It's in Our Hands videos, definitely watch it because it's so good. Yeah. But yeah, that's Vespertine. So,
3: are we ranking?
0: Yeah, we're ranking, and we're at the 10th episode now.
3: So, th- this gets high for me. I think this is just under Interpol. Oh, uh, of course. <laughs> of course, it's just under Interpol. Nobody beats Interpol, but it is wh- what surprised me is that it beat Little Earthquakes, and I think the only reason it does is because, like, Little Earthquakes is. St- Still, my least favorite of Tori Amos's Imperial phase. So, if we did another Tori Amos album, would that be
0: number one for you? If we did something like Choir Girl or Billy's for Pele,
3: then yes. Okay, interesting. Okay, well, we'll we'll keep that in our back pocket. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are other songs I like more than or other albums I like more than the Interpol album. We just haven't gotten
0: there yet. Okay, okay, fair enough. If musically, it's number one. But, because of some of the like ambiguities of the lyrics and all that not connecting as much with some of the other songs, I'd put it at number two below little Earthquakes. But, yeah, I mean, Bjork is an artist to me where it's about the totality <laughs> of her entire career, <laughs> even more so than like a particular album. Although, like I said, I might like medulla or post like a little bit more than this album. But, yeah, I don't know. It was nice to revisit Bjork because, like like I said, I fell out with her stuff a little bit. We've explained why, but it feels like everything is cyclical. It comes back and you realize, like, you know, it's like a relative or something that you were really close to that you sort of fell out with for several years and then came back in touch with and you realize, like, why you connected so much with that person. I guess that, that's my relationship with her music. And, and maybe one day I will actually get to meet her uh, because that's that has been a life goal of mine. Yeah, let me know how it goes. Yeah, who knows? I think she's in Iceland now and not in New York, but she seems pretty happy. Like, she seemed pretty... I don't know, every I- interview that I've read with Bjork, even though she talks in a very, you know, in the way that she talks, she she always seems fairly centered and, like, she can be even, like, a little bit self-deprecating at times, which uh, I know is, like, kind of hard to imagine because she also is, like... <laughs> she is also an egomaniac in her own way, well, you know, of you course. you kind of
3: have to be to be in that position. Yeah,
0: but I think the thing about Bjork, too, is it's, like, whenever I listen to her... Stuff. It's like, this is what music could be, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is why she became such the antidote to, like, the 2000s era fucking scenester cynicism, where it's just, like, regurgitating ideas over and over again from previous musical eras. And, like, especially as the 2000s went on, like you know just went to this place of just like pure just kind of like where you don't know like how sincere any artist is and there's always like so many like caveats to have an artist like Bjork especially when I was like getting into like the game space where it was like much more and I was living in the Bay Area there's a much more like utopian attitude around that stuff at least at the time it's having an artist like Bjork who is like much more in tune with technology and stuff just like was a perfect like she was so ahead of her time in that regard of just being going full bore into like embracing technology and uh, as like a big mainstream pop artist in this way and the fact that she's still around and still making work it just feel it just felt like there's just something about her that just felt like this island where you go to and you feel like comforted and a little bit like reassured about the possibility that music can actually mean (laughs) something. And you know, it isn't just all like fucking fodder for labels or fucking hipster culture, you know, advertisement or whatever, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's both true and beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, speaking of fodder for advertising and uh, um, uh, 2000s era cynicism, we will get, be getting back into, like, indie rock. Yeah. <laughs> but this whole vacation that we've taken to Boards of Canada and Black Alicious and Bjork has been so nice. And I almost feel like we, <laughs> we, like, blew our
3: load a little too fast. Yeah, we spoiled ourselves. <laughs> and now we must be punished.
0: But there's still other stuff yeah. to get to. And plus, I do want to talk about more Bjork albums in the future anyway. So,
3: Oh, of course. Well, there's always, there'll always be something. But for now, we we need to punish ourselves.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, do we want to talk about, what are we, yeah, what are we doing next week? Uh, what are we doing next week is a good question. I don't have my notes up. So I think we have settled on doing, so I suggested potentially Kill the Moonlight by Spoon. but Oh, that's right. But you countered with Girls Can Tell, and you seem to have a stronger opinion about Spoon. So we're going to go with 2001's Girls Can Tell. Yes. Although, we, just imagine that we're doing both, even though then we're only going to do one of it's them. It's our
3: Spoon episode. We're not going to do another Spoon episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kill the Moonlight was, like,
0: very well-received in Pitchfork, and it's the one that I've heard, but they're, like, right back-to-back
3: with each other. There's also Gimme Fiction was another big one for, for any... Look, the, the here's the thing. There's no great difference between any Spoon album to any other. <laughs> and this is going to be for somebody who enjoys some Spoon quite a bit. Uh, Girls Can't Tell is just more interesting than Kill the, Moon- than Kill the Moonlight.
0: Okay. Well, I'm I'm curious to hear it because I don't even know if I've heard that album. Like I said, I heard some of "Kill the Moonlight," and I was like, yeah,
3: they're still more interesting than the National. Like this isn't the worst thing we could do. Oh,
0: we are going to do the National at some point. And that's yeah. going to be a rough one. That's going to be a thing, especially because the National has had far more of an impact on pop music, like as a whole. Yeah, since then, which is really, uh, Anyway, God, Bjork is just this like wonderful oasis away from that temporarily. Yeah,
3: and then next week, yeah, we're, we're back in it. We're going to talk about Spoon. Is there anything else we need to cover? <laughs> no, uh, we we probably won't talk about Spoon the whole episode. Oh, yeah,
0: no. Uh, we might have some discourse about m- the music world as we did on our 12 Rods episode. But mm-hmm. yeah, please email us kitchfork. Podcast KitchforkPodcast at gmail dot com. I don't have any letters or anything to read, uh, which is fine because we're we already <laughs> gone pretty long anyway. But yeah, please email us, uh, rate and review on iTunes, please or whatever it's called Apple Podcasts now I definitely am going to bring in a guest I don't know exactly who yet I have some ideas not for the next episode but maybe for the one after that so stay tuned please share the podcast with your friends and uh, yeah hopefully this new Bjork album comes out soon so it uh, be interesting to listen to it might even have already come out if you're listening to this uh, in the future but yeah. yeah anyway I've been Liz Ryerson I've been Max Cohen and, and just remember It's in our hands <laughs> To make music To make the music world Not fucking shitty Redigested music Of 20 years that ago that an indie
3: music scene like that <laughs> 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 Oh god We're Look done That's out it. That's it. It. We're done Feather.
1: Look now